listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right. In fact, that's part of our text this morning. So let's, uh, let's get into it. First Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 6 through the end of the chapter. And the topic, I think, is an appropriate one from this text today. Spiritual warfare and resisting our adversary, the devil. Peter ends this letter of encouragement to Christians scattered throughout modern-day Turkey in, under the persecution of the Roman Empire. And he encourages them, telling them that their fight is not just against the physical Roman authorities, but against against these spiritual forces of evil that want to destroy us. And how appropriate is that, I think, the Sunday before Christmas. Isn't it kind of strange? Um, Maybe I'm the only complicated soul here, and I I allow for that possibility. Um, I I allow for the possibility that I may be the most complicated soul here. Uh, (laughs) We got an amen from the front row, (laughs) who happens to be um, a resident of my house. The only other adult that lives in my house, also known as my wife. Um, but, uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> but it's true. What can you say? The truth hurts. But there's this weird thing, isn't it? Isn't there that I, Christmas is a nostalgic and beautiful time full of family and tradition and remembering Jesus' incarnation? But in another way, it also can be, for many of us, one of the most difficult times of the year. It's a time when maybe thinking about uh, losses, maybe bereavement, losing a loved one in the previous year, those feelings are more poignant. Uh, Maybe the disappointments of the previous year, those feelings kind of resurface. Maybe you are separated geographically from your family and it causes you to just sort of, I don't know, just be a little down, kind of be like a little Scrooge. And I think that's a part of my problem for 25 years now. I can remember getting on a plane in the airport in San Diego, going away to college in New York, and my mother just losing it at the airport before I got on the plane and she I said mom get yourself together you know I mean come on I was a teenager then and how your parents acted in public was important to me at that time and I was like gather yourself and she said you will never live here again and I said oh come on mom I'm gonna go to college I'm gonna serve a few years in the army and then I'll be I'll be I'll be back I have not been back to my hometown for more than a week since that day and there's this sometimes this sort of profound sadness that grips my soul as I think about being away from my family. And there's these strange sort of divergence of emotions that hit us at this time, isn't there? And strangely, this can be one of the most spiritually oppressing and difficult times. And so in God's kind providence, he has us in this text this morning to think about and equip us on how to resist the devil, 
to fight the spiritual battle that seems to rage all the more during this time. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. I'll read and then we'll pray. And I think this text begs three questions, which we'll, we'll answer in just a moment, which I'll read for you in just a moment after I read. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, he's referring there to the church in Rome, she who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, the gospel writers who he's referring to there. So does Mark, my son. Verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. As we work our way back through this text, I think it begs three questions, which will form sort of an outline of us looking at this passage. The first question is, who is our adversary? Who is this devil, also called Satan in the scriptures? Secondly, how do we resist him? What has God given us? What means of grace has God give us, given us to resist the devil? In fact, that's the force of this passage, the imperative by Peter to his readers and to Christians through the ages to resist the devil. And then the third question is, where is God in all of this? What's the part of our sovereign, providential, loving Father? What part is he playing in all of this spiritual warfare and fight against our adversary, the devil. Okay, so three questions. Who is our adversary? How do we resist him? And where is God? And what is his part in, in all of this? Well, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, as we come to your text, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe even as the rain is pouring down on the roof and watering the earth, I pray that with your word you would water our hearts, that your word would not return void this morning, 
that Christians would be established and confirmed and strengthened and equipped to resist the father of lies, the devil, who accuses us daily before you. But as Robert read for us, and as we confess together in our catechism question, we have an advocate. We have God the Son, our big brother Jesus, who daily makes intercession for us, who is ascended, who is at your right hand, who has all authority. And so come now, Lord, and encourage Christians. And I pray, God, for my friends in the room who may not yet be trusting in Jesus, that you would give them the very thing that you require of them, life and faith and repentance, so that they can turn away from trusting in themselves, they can turn away from counterfeit pleasures that are destroying their soul, and they can turn to the true joy, the true, true pleasure, Christ and his work on the cross, and his life. Help us now as we work through this text. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, who is our adversary? Peter clearly tells us that we need to be there in verse 8, that we need to be sober-minded, watchful, because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So who is this devil? that Peter is referring to? Well, the Bible gives us clear, a clear answer to that question. In the Old Testament, in fact, even at the beginning of the Bible, sometime between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, where we see Adam and Eve falling in the garden and disobeying God, being tempted by this serpent, which is Satan coming to tempt Adam and Eve, sometime clearly before mankind fell, there was the fall and rebellion of a host of angels that in their fall then were cast away from God and became demons. And there seems to be a clear sense in the Old Testament and the New Testament, which we'll get to in a moment, reading some scripture, that the leader of this rebellion and the leader of these fallen angels, now demons, is one particular demon, fallen angel, in charge of all of the rest of the rebellious angels, who is called in the scriptures Satan, the devil, sometimes referred to as Lucifer. So in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, we see a picture of what happened even before the Garden of Eden, before Adam and Eve fell, where Peter writes in his second letter, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So that clearly has happened before the fall in Genesis 3. And then in Jude 6, we see Jude write, again referring to this pre-Garden of Eden, mankind fall to this fall of these rebellious angels. And Jude 6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. So there seems to be clear uh, 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 truth here pointing to the fact that sometime between and before the fall of Adam and Eve, before the fall of mankind, a host of angels rebelled against God, led by one particular angel referred to as Satan, now the leader of the demons. 
And the Bible does present Satan as the head of these demons. This word Satan, which we, which we commonly refer to him as, which the Bible refers to, to this head rebellious demon, is a Hebrew word simply meaning adversary. So in Job chapter 1, one of the earliest books of the Bible written, Job chapter 1 verse 6, uh, we see this head demon, Satan, coming before the Lord, inquiring about, about uh, Job. In 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1, we see the Bible refer to this lead demon, leader of this rebellion, Satan, who stood up against Israel and incited King David to number Israel. And then in the New Testament, we see this principal figure of Satan, the devil, as the leader of the rebellion, as the leader of demons coming to Jesus and tempting Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, also referred to in some of the other gospel accounts where Jesus has this conversation with Satan and rebukes him with the word of God and, and says to him after he successfully resists Satan's temptation, be gone, Satan. And then later on in the New Testament, in Paul's letters, especially in Ephesians chapter 2, we, we see this, this chief demon, Satan, referred to as the prince of the power of the air. So in one sense, he has been given a delegated, relegated authority over a fallen world. Now we're going to talk about how God's authority is over that but we see Satan as being called here by Paul the prince of the power of the air. And then Jesus in John chapter 8 verse 44 speaking very directly about people that are not in Christ and who their, their father is. He says in John 8 44, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning that doesn't mean that he was pre-existent and eternal like God. It just means that from the time he, from even before Adam and Eve, he was a murderer and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so clearly the Bible presents Satan as the leader of this host of fallen angels, now demons. But it's important for us to remember that Satan, our adversary, and all demons, his minions that are under his control and his authority and, and, and form an alliance against God, they have a limited power and are still under God's control. So did you pick up when we read those New Testament verses in 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude 6? There's a sense that even the demons, as, as much evil and havoc as they may wreak on the earth since their rebellion, are still on a leash. They're under chains. Did you hear that phrase there in 2 Peter 2 and Jude 6? And it's important for us to not give them more more authority and power and do than they deserve because we need to reconcile their subdued and secondary authority underneath Jesus's complete and supreme authority. So we read about Jesus's utter authority in Matthew 28 where he says, all authority has been given to me. And that authority then is what he commands the church to go under that authority to preach the gospel. We see in Ephesians 1 where Everything has been put under Jesus' feet. 
And so when we read about the devil's power and the power of demonic forces in the Bible, know that it is real, but know that it is still under God's ultimate authority. So, so, so listen, the, the Christian gospel, the Bible, it, it's not like Star Wars, you know, where you have like these, this duality of forces that are kind of battling each other, you know, and Luke Skywalker, when the clock is going down to zero at the end of the fourth quarter, kind of hits a fallaway three-pointer to barely win. And, and we sort of have a 50-50 split, and whoo, thank goodness we can fast forward to the end of the Bible and see that we sort of get by by a fallaway three at the buzzer. That, that's not the picture of good and evil in the Bible. The picture of God's power versus Satan's given relegated authority is, is that we have a supreme, providential, absolute, all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God who has even allowed for the entrance of evil into his creation so that he could save and renew and restore a people for himself for the purpose of making a greater display of his glory and beauty and attributes to an onlooking creation. That is a radically God-centered and clearly biblical view of God's relationship with evil. God is, is not wringing his hands up in heaven saying, oh my, that little fork-headed, pitchfork, little red-suited guy is moving the ball on us. We've got to shore up our D and block and tackle. Get down there, Jesus, and let's have a better second half. And maybe we can pull this thing out. That's not the way the Bible pictures God's relationship with evil and Satan. Now, I realize that is humbling. And I realize that orients our heart away from ourselves and to God's glory. And that brings up all sorts of questions about why God would even allow these things to happen when clearly he could do whatever he wants. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115 verse 3. But I think that what it orients us to is that everything happens for the display of God's glory and in his wise providence and counsel, he has determined that the saving of his people, the display of his grace, the display of his mercy and redemptive power is the most loving and beautiful and glorifying thing that could have happened. And so everything happens to the ultimate display of God's glory. And that's the number one truth in the universe is the display of God's glory. Not everything happening the way we want it to happen in our temporal earthly life. And the sooner that we clue ourselves into that trajectory of scripture, the more in check with, we'll be with the way things are and the more like biblical our worldview will be. So Satan is our adversary who has come but has a limited authority underneath God's power. 
So how do we then resist the devil? Let's go back to what Peter says. In verse 9, he says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Well, before we even go through, I've got a few things for for you to think about here, but before we even get into uh, some means of grace that God gives us, I think one thing is just to have this mindset to know that, that, that other people, are, other Christians around the world are enduring persecution, enduring spiritual warfare, and we are not alone. There's just something about like our frailty as humans that whenever we're going through something, don't we just want to act like what we're going through is so bad? Like, nobody understands me. Nobody And Peter is pushing against that sort of self-absorption, and he's saying, hey, listen, this is regular. This is normal. Remember what we looked at in 1 Peter chapter 4? Do not think it's strange when some fiery trial comes upon you. This is evidence of God's grace in your life, and here's an opportunity to grow in Christ and anchor yourself in being satisfied in Jesus and not temporal comfort. So then, how do we resist the devil? Well, here's four thoughts. For, for us on how to resist the devil. This is certainly not an inspired list. This is not um, an exhaustive list. These are just some thoughts that I hope will be helpful to you. How do we resist? What is Peter saying when he says, resist him, be firm in your faith? One way that I think we resist the devil is to know the God of the whole Bible. I think one of the great weaknesses of American Christianity is that we have sort of reduced ourselves down to being completely dependent on, you know, consumption and maybe a devotional book or some curriculum or whatever. And because we're just biblically illiterate people for the most part, uh, we don't have an understanding of how the whole Bible fits together. And maybe we've got a few worn paths through the forest, you know, of the Bible that we know real well, but whenever something happens kind of in the world or in our life that we can't sort of answer by our collection of 10 or 15 favorite verses, we we really, our spiritual growth is stunted and we don't really have answers for it. And one of the best things that you can do for your soul is to develop categories for what the Bible says about the great issues of life and the great truths in the Bible. The theologians call this systematic theology, to have a a sort of system, like, like cupboards, which you can label things and put truth in so that you can reach for it when things seem to be confusing in your life. So, so, it's kind of like when, when Jennifer and I first got married, we've been married now, we celebrated our 19th um, wedding anniversary this week. And um, I made the romantic decision to um, just have our community group over and sing Christmas carols. Still debating the wisdom of that, but um, a constant theme kept coming up, like, oh, isn't this neat? You guys are having us over, you know, to celebrate your anniversary with us. And next year will be our 20th anniversary. And every time that, oh, yeah, this is wonderful, Jennifer would just get in. Well, next year's 20, so, you know, he, he's going you know, to do better than this. <laughs> anyway, um, when we got married 20 years ago, I came to Fort Benning as a young soldier. And um, I noticed about my wife that she knew, she's from Columbus, born and raised here. And she knew, having been born and raised here, like 
she knew the well-worn paths of the streets to get to where she needed to go. So her, she grew up on Biggers Road, and she knew how to get to Shaw High School, because that's where she went to high school. She knew how to get to uh, Publix on Bradley Park. She knew how to get to her church that she grew up in. And that was about it. <laughs> and so, like, we'd be driving around Columbus, and I'd say, well, where, what's this? And she wouldn't have any idea where she was. And I've, you know, kind of always wanted to know, like, the layout of the city and all that kind of stuff. And, and so I think a lot of, a lot of Christians are kind of like, they know a few streets in the Bible, but we don't have this sort of comprehensive look at what the Bible says, piecing things together about the, the nature of God the nature of sin, what it means to be a child of God so that when you are being assailed by doubt and you're, being, you're just in touch with your frailty, you can go back to the doctrine of God's adopting grace and fight your feelings and fight whatever demon may be plaguing you in that moment if there is any demonic oppression in that moment with the truth of the reality of the doctrine of God's adopting grace. And you can say, okay, now this is what the Bible says, not just in three or four places that I've got sort of underlined, but I know that I have been adopted for salvation through Jesus Christ, because that's what Ephesians 1 says, and Galatians 4 says that I am an heir, a son of God through Jesus Christ, and, and Romans 8 ties together with this, and it says that I am no longer a slave, but I am a child of God, and therefore I need not to fall back into this slavery of fear, but I'm adopted and I can cry out, Abba, Father. And you have these categories. And then when you see evil seeming to triumph in the world, you can say, okay, now no, I know that, that, that even that horrific event is on a chain and God somehow is working all things together for his glory and the good of his people. In Ephesians 1 verse 11, this doctrine of God's providence tells me that he works all things together according to the counsel of his will. So I look at this event and I place that tragic thing in time underneath the authority of this category I have, which is a compilation of truths from the Bible, not just from three or four well-worn paths, but this view of the whole Bible. And I think one of the great weaknesses of the American church, because we just, are, we just fed packaged stuff, is that we don't have a, a grand view of the whole Bible. In a sense, what some of us need to do is like we need to go up the Empire State Building and see the whole New York City, right? I was talking to a family that grew up in New York City. I recently I talked to a guy, Isaiah, he grew, grew up in Brooklyn, and he quoted for us 1 Peter 5, 2. And you can grow up in Brooklyn, was it Brooklyn or the Bronx? Brooklyn. You can grow up in Brooklyn and never know and never leave three or four blocks around you. And that's the way a lot of Christians are. But I'm encouraging us to get up the Empire State Building and see the great landscape of Scripture. Here's a recommendation. This book, Systematic Theology, I'm not giving it away, so don't get antsy. This is mine. It's, this is my baby right here. This book has been so helpful to me. It's a book called Systematic Theology, An Introduction to Biblical Doctrine, written by a scholar named Wayne Grudem. 
this book, it looks thick and it's intimidating. And some of you are like, ah, I don't know, I mean, I can't do that. Friends, this is so well organized and so easy to read and has such a great table of contents and answers virtually every question about doctrine that a Christian could have that you say, well, I have a question about angels and demons and, and Satan. So you look up to the table of contents and you go straight to it and it is written, I mean, on a middle school level, anybody, this would be a great resource for you to have to know the whole Bible, to see the whole landscape, to have categories with which you frame your world. And this would be a great way to help you do that in addition to, obviously, just your regular Bible reading. There's probably not a week that goes by that I don't refer to this, to this book. So know the God of the whole Bible. Secondly, repent of, of sin. It's easy for us sometimes to just, when we think about spiritual warfare, to just kind of blame everything on the devil, isn't it? C.S. Lewis, a great British Christian writer in the mid-1900s, said in his uh, famous work, The Screwtape Letters, that modern man is prone to one of two errors. Either we think too, we think too much of demons, or we think too little and we disbelieve them. And I think many times people think too much, or to sort of exonerate themselves from their own sin and spiritual responsibility before the Lord, we just attribute everything to the devil. I think the Bible presents a sort of unholy trinity that we fight as Christians. The theologians have sort of categorized it this way through the history of the church. The world, the flesh, and the devil, right? So clearly we have an adversary. He prowls about like a lion seeking whom he may devour, and we need to think about ways that we can resist him and be clear of what he's doing. Our battle is not primarily against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of this dark age. We need to fight against that clearly. But I think it's also a mistake to just sort of blame everything on the devil. Sometimes we're just like, we're sinners, right? We are fallen people. James 4, uh, at the beginning of James 4, James says that, that the reason you're having these trouble is because of the lusts that are within you that wage against your soul. And then later on, a couple verses later, he says, then it, it, it seems to indicate that the, the devil sort of piggybacks on the flesh and causes problem for you, and so you need to resist him. So there's just this sense that we are fallen people, we have this flesh that we need to battle, and then we live in a fallen world where there's this culture that is against God, and then this culture is led by, clearly, Satan and his demons but the point is, is that we cannot just blame everything on the world and the devil. There is sin in us that needs to be repented of. And that's where going back to having a comprehensive view of the Bible, you need to know what sin is, right? I mean, what you, so, so knowing the Bible, having a good doctrine of sin, having a, a good understanding of what the Bible says about that will help you understand what we need to repent of continually being people that are constantly turning away even after we've trusted in Christ and turning away from sin and to, to God. Remember that William Arnault quote that I quote often? I know I wear it out. I wear it out. He's a British dude in the 1800s, pastor, long beard, awesome looking cat. Google William Arnault, A-R-N-O-T-T, -T, just for the picture of the guy. It's worth just looking at him. And William Arnault says something to the effect, it's one of my favorite quotes, he says that the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian is not that one has sin and the other does not, but that the Christian is taking God's side against their sin, whereas the non-Christian is taking sin's side against a dreaded God. 
right? And one of the best ways we can fight evil, fight demonic forces, is not by giving evil a foothold into our lives and repent of our sin and close doors that the flesh allows evil to enter our lives. So that may mean, practically, that there are computers that need to be thrown away. Or there are movie channels that need to be unsubscribed to. Or there are environments where you just need to get out of your life. Because when you leave open that avenue, it's, it's just like, you know, you just, what you're doing is you're putting, like you're, you're, you're taking the lid off of your trash can and you're leaving it by the front door and you're swinging open your front door and you're going to bed and you're wondering why you wake up in the morning and there's a bunch of critters in your house. <laughs> and so we, we all need to repent of our sin continually. Thirdly, we need to run to God in prayer. Like, we need to go to God. Listen to Psalm 130. Listen to this. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Unless any of us think that we need to sort of square ourselves away and build up a good week of relative righteousness before we can run to the Father, this next verse crushes that false gospel. It says in verse 3, If you, Lord, should mark our iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Right? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love. And with him, there is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquity. So do you see, do you see the accent? Do you see the trajectory? It's not square yourself away, little child. Build up some good, you know, good merits and bring them to the Father and then he will accept you. No, run to God, repent of your sin, come to God and cry out to him continually. This is where I think the word of faith teachers and much of the sort of charismatic wing of the church gets it so wrong and often preaches a false gospel. You listen to your average teacher on TBN and they are pointing you inward to yourself saying you need to drum up more faith and you need to have like these positive confessions and they put all of the power into like your tongue, right? And, and what that's basically saying is, you need to be strong, You've, God's given you this power, and you need, to, you need to just, you know, just amplify it in your life, all the powers in your tongue, all the powers in your faith. Friends, to be a Christian is not to have faith in faith. To be a Christian is to have faith in the object of our faith, which is Jesus. And even the most meager and weakest of faith and hearts and frail lives can run to God and he will accept them. Not because they're confessing the right thing or because they're strong, but because he is strong. 
So we can run to God, not to the power of our own confession. And we find open arms of redemption. And then four, so number one, know the God of the whole Bible. Two, repent of sin. Three, run to God in power. Before I get on to four, let me just mention, I do think that there's a place, I see it in scripture occasionally, where there is this speaking directly to our adversary. But I don't think that's the trajectory. We see Jesus saying to Satan with the word of God, be gone, Satan. But I want you to notice that the Bible talks about spiritual warfare. Paul will say in Ephesians 6, again, that our battle's not against flesh and blood. It'd be a great scripture for you to write down Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. But the trajectory in scripture is not that we get into this sort of conversation, this rebuking conversation with the enemy. That's not the way the Bible presents our fight against Satan. It presents us of us knowing truth, repenting of sin, going to God, and fighting our flesh with the word, fighting our frailties with prayer. And then finally, fourth, so know the whole Bible, know the God of the whole Bible, repent of sin, run to God in prayer, and fourth, I, can't, I think this is just implicit through the whole book of 1 Peter, the whole Bible, give yourself to biblical community. And I think specifically, give yourself to the authority of the life of a local church. Just imagine, I was just thinking about this. Just imagine for me, with me for a moment, if you will, how weak we are, I think, culturally in this idea of, of like honest, like covenant community, where there's this commitment that we are with somebody relationally, and that no matter what happens between us, like I'm committed to you in Christ, and no matter what happens, we're gonna be together for each other's good and the glory of God. I think that's the basis of displaying the gospel in marriage. But I also think there's much power as we apply that to, to life in community. Think about just kind of the whole idea of church life generally in America, not here in this church, thankfully, but generally. There's just sort of this consumer thing where people, you know, just sort of float from church to church every three or four years. Well, you know, I was over there and, you know, I didn't like what pastor was preaching, so I went somewhere else. Oh, I went over there for a while. You know, they got a new music guy, and you know, so I went somewhere else. And you just kind of, you never live in this sort of honest, rugged, raw environment where anybody knows you and has authority to say, like, hey, dude, like, how are you, like, inside? Like, what's going on in your heart? And if there's sin in your life, there's nobody that's like honestly able to put their finger on it. And you're not being used in any way because Christian life in, in that culture sort of exists of going to musicals and, and, you know, just having a sort of surface sort of thing. And, you know, we got this production over here and we're going to do this thing. And it's kind of all based on our preferences and desires. And the moment those things get rattled, we run to some other place. And it, it's, it's, like, it's like Christianity by contract. You please me, and I'll stick around. That's why the vast majority of Christians, I think, in the Bible, but that's a bit of an overstatement. I get a little, I exaggerate occasionally. I'm sorry. I want to be a little bit more encouraging positive. That's why many Christians in America and in the Bible Belt South, I think, are so weak. Because they just run from place to place, 
The moment some, they disagree with somebody, the moment there's a grievance, the moment the pastor preaches on a difficult doctrine that they haven't ever thought about, that they can't really even approach biblically, but it just sounds like it doesn't line up with their philosophical upbringing, they run. Friends, that is, like, that is horrible. You know, th that is like eating Captain Crunch for every meal. Like, you might stay alive, but you're going to be one unhealthy dude. And that, like, like, I think a lot of Christians, like, they just feed on Captain Crunch. Because we're so thin-skinned, and, like, we don't want to be offended, and, and so, so, and we, we, like, we're so concerned with how, whether or not people like us, God forbid that we ever, like, confront somebody else when we, oh, well, maybe the pastor will do it. You know, or maybe they'll, and so we just sort of live these sort of false lives, and, and, and those false sort of closed-in lives that are just weak, weak lives are so vulnerable to the devil. And we just sort of skim along. I know maybe we don't have some sort of like demon oppression in our life, but this is the way the devil takes you out. He neutralizes you and gives you over to your self-absorption. <laughs> right? And you, you've, been, you've been relegated to ineffectiveness. And you may eke into glory someday, but you're going to be one malnourished, unfruitful, self-absorbed, sorry cat. And God gives us like biblical community to roll up our sleeves, to love people that are not like us, to serve one another, to die to our preferences, to rebuke our sin, to be in a relationship with each other where we say, I love you in Christ and I'm not leaving you, man, and we're going to work through this thing and we're going to grow together in Christ. We're going to stay on mission. We're going to be about something other than ourselves and our preferences and we're going to fight the devil together and we're going to take a bunch of people with us as we display the surpassing worth of Jesus to this consumer, malnourished world around us who are going to be drawn to the strength of this community in Christ and we're going to be satisfied in Jesus and not ourselves. Friends, do you see how just the regular means of grace, like knowing the Bible, repenting of sin, going to God in prayer, living in community, that's the way God helps us resist the devil, not to learn some little magic incantation that some false preacher is preaching to you on TBN. That's not the way to spiritual maturity or fighting the devil. It's false, and they just want your money and your eyeballs on the TV set. And they know nothing of the God of the Bible and the regular, ordinary means of grace that God has given his people from the beginning of the church until now. You see how simple it is? Not easy, but do you see how simple it is? And then finally, I end. I've taken too much time on this. You should know my audience. It's the Sunday before Christmas, and I know you guys are just like, oh gosh, come on, really? Couldn't you have read a nativity story and give us a little 15-minute devotional and wrap this puppy up? I know, I'm not beating you up. Are we? I got you. So where is God in all this? 
Well, friends, this isn't just about the devil and about our tools to fight him. There's something greater holding this all together. And it is our sovereign God who has all dominion and power, right? So even in the text that we read today, let me get, get back to it. First Peter, there it is. I got it written down in my notes already. I don't have to fumble around with it. Even in the text, Peter is lacing in this greater truth of God's sovereign power. So verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, so inferred there is that time and the execution of his will is all under God's sovereign care and power and time. So when God sees fit, his hand moves in our life, casting all of your anxieties, anxieties on him because he cares for you. Look at, at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So again, God's not up there in sort of this chess match with Satan, hoping to get in a good move if you will cooperate by the power of your tongue. No, God is in control of the timing and the extent and the duration Extent and duration, I think those mean the same thing. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. God is in control of everything that happens to us, even our suffering. And when he deems for the display of his glory and the good of his children for that thing to end, he who has called you after a little while will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Do you see that? God is not... Like on the sidelines, he is superintending this whole process. I was in the gym four or five years ago, and I will never forget this scene. There was this young man who had some sort of very severe, I think maybe cerebral palsy. It was in a wheelchair. Very severe. And his father would bring him to the gym every day. And he would get his boy out of the chair and carry him to exercise machines or to some little mat. And he would apply pressure to that boy's diseased and frail body. And he would push on his boy. And he would inflict pain on his boy. Because in that gym, you could hear, even if you were on the other side, even with that stupid music they play in the gym all day long, you could hear that boy as his daddy was pressing on him, crying out in pain. Oh! Even his vocal cords affected by his palsy. Oh! The pain that he was enduring was being inflicted by his father for the ultimate strengthening of the son. You see that? Even these demons that plague us are on chains, 
doing the bidding of a sovereign God who does all things and works all things together for the good of his people. Friends, that promise does not pertain to people who are not in Christ. So if you aren't in Christ right now, if you're in sin, if you're running your own race, doing your own thing, these things do not apply to you. You must repent of your sin. You must turn away from self-glorification and broken pleasures and turn in trust towards Jesus and what he has done on the cross to satisfy God's holiness. And you must look away from yourself and look to Jesus and believe that your only hope for right standing with the holy, beautiful, all good God of the universe is not to trust in yourself or your own work, but in him and what he has done in Christ on the cross through his death, dying for sin, and in his victorious resurrection, defeating sin and death and all of its consequences. And if you are trusting in Christ, then these things are true, that God as a good father, then after saving you, you, does not just put you on the little cruise boat and sail you around the next couple decades, but he puts pressure on you to wean you from this world and woo you to heaven. So where is God in all this? He's over and above it, superintending it for our good and his glory. And Peter is writing to Christians who are undergoing persecution, trial, trouble, stress, spiritual warfare, sin. And he's pointing them away from themselves. He's pointing them away from even the strength of their own faith. And he's pointing them to Jesus. I'll end with these words. Romans 8, verse 31 through 39. Some of the most powerful words in the Bible, we read them often here. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not because we had a good week or we have some powerful confession, but we are more than conquerors because of Jesus. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. If you're a believer in Jesus, look to God and be encouraged in your fight against the flesh, the world, and the devil. If you are not a Christian, look to Jesus. He is your only hope. Look to him even now and run to him.
Not because you may be good enough, but because he is good enough. Let's pray. Lord, help us now as we spend some time responding to these words from Peter. May it not be like water off of a of a Labrador retriever or a duck who has a coat that is meant to just cause water to roll off. But may you give us soft and porous hearts. And may we stay soaked with this word from Peter, your word, May it keep us drenched, even as this rain is drenching the soil. And may it, God, simultaneously encourage and convict us to look away from ourselves and to Christ. And God, would you establish us and confirm us And strengthen us in your glorious gospel. And God, would you give faith to any people in this room who came in not trusting in Jesus? And would you open their eyes to the beautiful, satisfying joy that is Christ? And would you help us fight the good fight? And would you help us be radically committed to one another? And would we lean forward together for that day when Jesus comes again, this time not as a lamb, but on that day as a lion, to take those chains that Satan, our adversary, and all of his little minions and demons are enchained by, and he takes them and he throws them into the lake of fire, never to be heard from again, never to plague your people again. God, would we lean forward together as your people and long for that day. Until then, Lord, strengthen us. Establish us. Confirm us for the glory of your name for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name.